the man of screen. everybody welcome to another episode of man of screen podcast my name is mike zumo and in this episode we're going to look at the first four famous studios produced short films well basically what happened was by the end of 1941 the fleischer brothers max and dave were unable to work with each other anymore and eventually paramount pictures had ousted them and took over their facility at that point, it was renamed Famous Studios, and Seymour Nidal, Isidore Sparber, Sam Bookwald, and Dan Gordon were put in charge of the production. At this point, the tone of the series was changed. The Fleischer episodes were very heavy in the science fiction, as evidenced by episodes such as The Mad Scientist, The, the Magnetic Telescope, The Mechanical Monsters. At this point, Famous Studios moved over to more of a World War II propaganda theme, as we're going to see in the episodes we cover over the next two weeks. And the opening sequence also changed. And I am going to play that now, and then I'm going to take a short break, play a promo, and then I'm going to come back with the first of the four shorts we're going to cover today, Jabba Tours. Faster than a streak of lightning! More powerful than the pounding surf! Mightier than a roaring hurricane. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel, Superman. Possessing remarkable physical strength, Superman fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. Disguised as a mild-mannered newspaper reporter, Clark Kent. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire and Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show, and I want to be sure to plug my movie show, the Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins Podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network, and then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna Podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, oh, hot move. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Wahaha Podcast. Now, 
here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait network. a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first. So we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? to. No, French cannot be the Enough! Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page. And folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? All right. Uh, welcome back. Like I said, the first episode we're going to cover in this show is Japa Tours. It was released to theaters on September 18, 1942. It starred Bud Collier as Superman, Clark Kent, and the, ja- and the Japanese hijacker. Joan Alexander was Lois Lane. Jackson Beck was the narrator, and Jack Mercer was the press tour guide. Now, on to our synopsis from Wikipedia. The story begins with a shot of the front page of the Daily Planet. The headline reads, World's Largest Bombing Plane Finally Completed. The man reading the newspaper is Japanese. He stands up and looks at a picture of the Statue of Liberty in his office, and then pushes a button on his desk, and the picture changes into one of the Japanese flag. He bows to it and jams the glowing cigarette into the news headline. Later, the Japanese man and some acquaintances knock a guard out as the plane is being loaded for a test run. Clark Kent and Lois Lane are taking a tour of the new bombing plane for the planet. When everyone is told to get off, Lois stays behind and hides in a locker on board the plane. As the plane takes off, we see that there are other stowaways aboard, hidden inside what looks like bombs of the Japanese men. The spies tie and gag the pilots and hijack the plane. Meanwhile, Lois emerges from her hiding place and moves over to the cockpit. As she's about to open the door, she noticed the Japanese spies have hijacked the plane. She sneaks into the room and calls for help on the radio. Help! Help! Japs are stealing the drone bomber! Hurry up! However, the spies seize her. In response to her calls for help, the fighter planes are sent to stop the hijackers. In response, the hijackers deploy a bomb, which stops the fighters from taking off. Clark Kent goes into an elevator and changes into Superman as it goes up to the roof. Superman enters the plane to stop the hijackers, but one of them has Lois tied up and is ready to drop her out of the plane through the bomb hatch. Superman jumps out of the plane and comes back in through the bomb hatch to save Lois as she's being dropped. He unties her and starts fighting the hijackers. One of them breaks the plane's controls and the plane starts falling toward the city. Superman takes Lois out of the plane and places her on the ground, then flies back up and catches the plane, bringing it to a safe landing right in the middle of the street. Well, you're safe in this plane, Lois. I'd feel much safer if Superman were here. All right. In the so-called worldwide marketplace of today, you would not see an episode like this, as studios depend on the international market to bring in extra revenue. This cartoon, the uh, stereotypical Japanese characters were done in a style typical of American propaganda during World War II. The Japanese looked very cartoony as compared to the other characters. 
I did like the transition from when the uh, Japanese spy burns the cigarette into the newspaper. We go in a burning motion. We go straight from the newspaper to the airplane hangar. That was fairly well done. And uh, you can see right here at the beginning, the uh, saboteurs are shown entering the facility in silhouette. Even though the showrunners have changed, at this point, the new showrunners are still using the same visual cues. Now, right as Lois and Clark uh, board the plane, it's nice to see that Lois didn't steal Clark's press pass this time. Apparently, she's learning a little bit. And, of course, in true Lois fashion, she doesn't leave the plane when everybody else is told to get off. And I'm sure, and as we know, this is going to get her into some kind of trouble as we move on. You know, Lois will, no matter how many times she gets in trouble going off on her own, she is not going to be stopped. She is going to do what she has to. And she's going to do whatever she wants and no one's going to change. Now... The plane is going down the runway, and the animation right here struck me. It must be too difficult to animate the wheels on the plane moving, because you look at this thing, I don't care what kind of screen you're using, big, small, or otherwise, the wheels are not moving. The plane is just gliding down the runway as if it's on ice. Eventually, the, the plane will take off, and we'll get another, we can treat it to another magnificent shot of the larger plane launching the smaller ones. That's a cool sight. That's a cool visual. Now... We're introduced to the Japanese hijackers on the plane, and they are speaking in such a stereotypical Japanese accent that it's almost hard to listen to. It's, almost, it's very cartoony. So, ugh, the accents are terrible, but I'm pretty sure they're meant to be that terrible, so we're just going to note it and move on. All right. Lois is sneaking into the cockpit, and she knows that there are Japanese all over the place. What is she trying to accomplish here? And did she really expect not to be noticed as she got a hold of uh, the U.S. authorities and to tell them that the Japs, as she called them, have hijacked the plane? Now, obviously, this would not fly on TV today unless you're doing some kind of, if you're doing a World War II period piece. Japs today is regarded as an ethnic slur. Again, that just wouldn't fly into the media market. But she did accomplish her goal. She got her message out. And I can only wonder what Clark is up to right now. He he noticed Lois was gone a little while ago. Well, and you ask and you shall receive, as the next scene I'm treated to is Clark. He uh, sees the bomb, and he is going into the elevator. And the silhouetted only be behind the window as it rises. Another cool visual. Again... I'd love to have another shirt rip, but I know I'm not going to get one. And now he's finally flying. Although he landed on the plane and then ran to the hatch. I'm not exactly sure why he landed on the back of the plane. I think it might have been easier if he just flew to the hatch instead of walking along the roof. What do I know? And there's another enhancement in uh, Superman's flight, as it's clear now that he can indeed soar higher than any plane. He changes direction in midair. So, he's not leaping anymore. There's no question here. He is flying. He is not just leaping or jumping from building to building. This man can finally fly, and we're happy about that. The fight scenes continue to be smooth. The animation, at this point, hasn't really suffered from not being run by the Fleischers. Now, I don't know what this door is made of, but it is taking Superman an awful long time to break through. That is something we're going to see a lot from Superman in this era. He doesn't just 
bound through the doors like he does in the doors and walls like he does in the George Reeves series. It takes him some time. But either way, he eventually gets through, rescues Lois, and then catches the plane in midair. Catching it on the nose and then lowering it into the middle of the street. Superman Returns would take a, in 2006, would take a visual cue from this, where Superman has the plane almost vertical on its nose and then lowers it down horizontally. In this case, Superman is just lucky that the wings happen to intersect with a cross street, so no buildings are knocked down in the in the process of rescuing the plane. So that's about all I got for that one. Not a lot to say, you know. Like I keep mentioning, these shorts aren't exactly jam-packed with a ton of story. Now, the next episode is Showdown, which was released on October 16th, 1942. And this plot focuses on a criminal who impersonates Superman to commit crimes for a gangster. It stars Bud Collier as Clark Kent and Superman, Joan Alexander as Lois Lane, Jack Mercer as Jimmy Olsen, and the Superman imposter, Jackson Beck as the boss, and Julian Noah is the narrator. The uh, short starts off as a figure dressed as Superman is terrorizing Metropolis with various robberies. Every paper in the city runs the story that Superman has gone bad, but Lois Lane does not believe it to be true. As she and Clark Kent read the story at the Daily Planet, an office boy informs them that editor Perry White wants them to cover the opera and gives them two tickets. At the opera, the Superman imposter sneaks from booth to booth swiping people's jewelry without them noticing. When one woman cries out an alarm, Lois leaves her seat and walks out to the hallway confronting the imposter. After a brief struggle, Lois rips the S-patch off the imposter's chest, and he runs away. Not having seen his face in the the darkness, Lois is convinced that Superman really has been responsible for all the crimes. As Lois calls the police, Clark exits the booth to follow after the imposter. Cracking the door open slightly on the roof and noticing the imposter, Clark says, Well, my double's in for some trouble. As he changes into Superman. Seeing the police cars gather on the street below, the imposter heads back toward the door to the stairwell, where he is confronted by the real Superman. The imposter fires several rounds of Superman, but to no avail. He claims his boss made him do it. Without noticing, the imposter reaches the edge of the rooftop and falls over the edge. Superman swoops down to save him just in time. In the glow of the searchlights, Lois and the police realize the real Superman is not the criminal. Hoping for a lighter punishment, the imposter agrees to take Superman to his boss. Superman, without saying a thing, stands in front of the boss's desk. After several moments, the boss tries to hit him with a golf club, then raises a lamp and sees Superman's face, prompting him to press a hidden button that opens a trap door, and sends Superman falling into a pit. After the trap door closes, the boss and the imposter push the desk over the door and hide in a vault. Superman breaks out and opens the vault, tearing out electrified, electrified bars, only to find that the two have used a welding torch to cut a hole in the wall and escape. A police car is headed around the bend, unknowing that the criminals are coming at them from the other side. Just in time... Superman steps in and stops the cars from crashing, and he leaves the two criminals for the police to handle. Oh, next time you play Superman. Back at the Daily Planet, Clark is dozing off when Lois returns from the crime scene to start working the story. Boy, have I got a story. What's the matter, Bright Eyes? The opera get you down? Uh, just been dreaming I was Superman. Hmm. Fine Superman you'd make. Well, I can dream, can I? <laughs> now, I have a little more history with this episode than some of the others. I first saw this episode on one of those old VHS uh, 
tapes. It was the TV's Best Adventures of Superman, Volume 4. It was packaged with two episodes of the Adventures of Superman series from the 50s, specifically the Face and the Voice and the Jimmy the Kid episodes, both of which centered around doubles for a main character. The Face and the Voice was most similar to this episode as a gangster impersonating Superman, while Jimmy the Kid revolved around somebody who looked exactly like Jimmy. We get another new opening sequence, and we start with Superman making all kinds of robberies. But it's from the animation shows early that it's not him. The face is all wrong, much rounder, the hair is wrong. And when the imposter is back at his boss, he's sitting on the chair smoking. That's kind of amusing. You don't you know you don't see just about anybody smoking on TV or in the movies now. But back then everybody was smoking and just to see Superman lounging on a easy chair smoking, I find rather amusing at this point. Now, meanwhile, all the newspapers are after Superman. Lois doesn't believe it, and before she can ask Clark's opinion, this kid with dark hair and a gap tooth and bow tie tells them that Perry wants them to cover the opera. Oh, fair enough. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly in this episode, but the casting list from that I got from Wikipedia says, This kid is supposed to be Jimmy Olsen. Well... Maybe he is, maybe he's not, but Jimmy Olsen is never mentioned by name in the short. Lois and Clark don't even acknowledge him, and he just throws the opera tickets at, lo at them. And we get to the opera, and we're treated to Superman's double robbing the patrons of their jewels and wallets. Now, this begs the question, did he just walk in like that? I mean, I think if Superman, or a guy dressed like him, just tried to walk into the opera, that would raise a red flag or two. Well, maybe not here, but maybe he came in dressed as uh, Louis the Gangster and had a ticket. His boss looks well off enough to be able to provide him with an opera ticket if he uh, needs it to do his job. Might cut into the profits a little bit, but not too bad. Now, Lois wrestles with him and pulls off the S. She sees the ripped S in her hand and sees that it must be Superman because clearly only Superman would wear a shirt like that. Apparently, Lois is not up on licensing at this point. Or maybe there just was very little of it back then. But there's the S, so this guy's got to be Superman. I'm really enjoying this one as the plot unfolds. I'd rather see Superman fight crime than World War II. I mean, that's probably the uh, post-crisis training in me, as we've seen time and time again where... Superman has crossed into enemy lines, taken matters into his own hands, and paying a rather steep price for it. I'm, I'm pretty much used to Superman staying out of world affairs, unless the affairs include alien invasions or things that only Superman can handle. Now, he's on the roof. Steuben, as the uh, imposter is named or called by his boss, he is, opens the door, and I love Superman standing there with the hands on his hips. Very majestic, very iconic. Just a great Superman pose and a great drawing. And, you know, George Reeves' Superman did something like this, similar in the Money to Burn episode, but he didn't look nearly as heroic as the animation does here, mainly because, as I recall, George George was leaning on the doorframe, almost as though he were bored. Now, we get more great animation right after this. It's stupid. is shooting at Superman, but... The bullets just walk over him. And I love how Superman is not even saying a word while Steuben just stammers and backs away, runs out of bullets, throws the gun at him, and the gun just bounces off Superman and he keeps walking. It's a great comedy, but Steuben's cape gets caught on the roof and uh, 
when he detaches it, he falls off. And I just realized neither Superman costume has a belt. Neither Steuben or Superman is wearing a belt. There'll be more on that later. Now, Superman is going to pull one over on the boss, who just sees the S and is just talking as if he's Steuben. You would think that the boss would at least look at his face before talking to him, but he just kept on rambling until he tried to whack him with the golf club, and when Superman grabbed it, then it was a good idea to raise the lamp to see Superman's face. And then we get silly, as Superman just lets the boss sucker him into a trap door, and he falls into a pit. And then the uh, the boss and Steuben cover it up with a desk, and then Superman tries to climb up the walls. Did he suddenly forget that he can fly? I don't know. But eventually Superman gets out. You know, the electric bars on the windows don't make Superman happy as he gets treated to an electrical shock for his troubles. But it only takes him two attempts to rip the things off the wall and to continue after his quarry. Superman is not as powerful here as he would soon become in the 50s as he yanks on this door for what seems like 30 seconds until he manages to pry it open. He even has to stick his foot on the wall and push off for leverage. But after he manages to get out, he manages to stop two speeding cars with one hand each. You have to love the consistency. He, he is as powerful as the plot needs him to be. And as we end during the coda, I like the little gag with Clark's hat as he folds it up into an accordion and then it pops out when he puts it on his head and he makes a little popping sound with his mouth. I thought, I thought that was pretty cool. Very subtle. And that's pretty much all I got for this episode, where I am going to take another quick break, and then we're going to come back with our last two episodes for this week, The Eleventh Hour and Destruction, Inc. Do you enjoy time travel in general, and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. Welcome back, folks. Our next episode that we're, that we're going to cover on this show is The Eleventh Hour, which was released to theaters on November 20th, 1942, and it tells the story of what happens while Clark Kent and Lois Lane are prisoners in wartime Japan, and Superman becomes a saboteur. It stars Bud Collier as Superman and Clark Kent, Joan Alexander as Lois Lane, Jack Mercer as Japanese guard, the Japanese official, and the reporter, and Jackson Beck serves as the narrator. 
In the Japanese city of Yokohama, the 11th hour strikes and a ship is turned over. Superman escapes searchlights while sirens go off and goes through a window, putting a barred grill back in place. Lois asks, Hello, Clark. Are you awake? Well, say, who could sleep for a racket like this? But it's been going on every night since we've been interned. What do you suppose it could be? Could be sabotage, I hope. Me too. But who? Clark, do you suppose... Yes, Lois? Oh, nothing. Just a silly hunch that maybe Superman might be over here. Quiet! Do not talk! Shanasta! A Japanese official says the sabotage must stop at once. As the 11th hour strikes, Clark looks at his watch and leaves the window, returning as Superman. He leaves the room by removing the grill and drags the ship over the sea. Sabotage happens every night at the 11th hour, and the official again says the sabotage must stop. Lois sees Superman as he leaps between buildings. She says outside Clark's room that it is Superman. She just saw him and the Japanese have a swell chance of catching him. However, a guard covers her mouth from behind and drags her out. Notices are put up, saying, warning. Superman, one more act of sabotage and the American girl reporter will be executed at once. Superman sends another ship into the sea, but is buried under steel girders. Lois is taken out for execution with her hands tied. As Superman digs himself out, she walks against the wall and is blindfolded. Superman sees the notice and is fired upon, but leaves anyway. He shields Lois just as the bullets are fired, and leaps away with her. On a ship landing in America, Lois is interviewed. Miss Lane. This way, please. How does it feel to be home? Well, please. Uh, how about Clark Kent? Did he get away? No. No, he's still over there. But don't worry. Superman promised to look after him. As the 11th hour strikes in Japan, there is another explosion. So, we've got more World War II as we start in Japan, and obviously these shorts were produced shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, as most of the World War II shorts are focused on Japan and not the action going on in Europe. Alright, I'm looking at Superman, and there he is again with no belt. I'm keeping track of this at this point. I don't know how expensive it is to animate a belt, but... Famous is not doing it. Now, Lois and Clark are entering Japan. They're hoping that Superman is there to cause trouble for the Japanese. You would not see this today. In today's comics, at least the DC ones that I've read, the superheroes stay out of world affairs. The most recent time I saw Superman involve himself in the political affairs of another country was in the Earth Earth 1 Volume 2, written by J. Michael Straczynski. And you saw the negative consequences that it had on Superman in the third issue of that series. So, anytime Superman involves himself in a conflict in another country, bad things happen. So, you don't see those kinds of stories today. But, back at this time in 1942, everybody was feeling... A lot of the entertainment was used to drum up support for the war overseas and to instill a sense of patriotism in the people viewing. So, apparently, Lois and Clark are interned in Japan. Is there no story about how they got there. You know, I personally, I didn't need much. I mean, maybe a line saying they were captured in Japan while acting as foreign correspondents. 
I don't need everything explained, but Lois and Clark being detained by a foreign government is no small plot detail. You know, we, we, but we just ha are asked to accept the fact that they've been interned in Japan, and off we go. Now, Superman is wreaking havoc on Japan this whole episode. And he destroys the ship, and I'm wondering if anybody was on that ship that Superman just destroyed. You know, Man of Steel detractors complain about a snapped neck in an attempt to save a family, or the collateral damage in the buildings between the fight between Zod and Superman, but is anybody complaining here about how many lives were snuffed out when Superman sunk this ship? Probably not, because they were Japanese lives, and, well, during World War II, nobody cared about that. Well, so anyway, Lois is enjoying watching Superman uh, wreak havoc for the foreign government, and the Japanese are threatening to kill Lois if Superman doesn't stop. This is clearly meant to show that the Japanese are evil and no better than the common criminals that Superman is facing down during the crime-related stories. You know, we are not uh, looking for tolerance here. We are drumming up anti-Japanese sentiments with this storyline, clearly. So, on the other side, we've seen more Superman on this show than any other, as most of the others have been very formulaic, with Superman only appearing at the climax of the episode. Now, right here, Lois is about to be shot for Superman's crimes, and, of course, Superman did not heed the warnings of the Japanese to cease and desist his hostilities, and they are true to their word, and they are going to execute Lois. Now, just as she's about to be shot, Superman notices and shows up, jumps in front of her, and... It swiftly took care of the Japanese. One beautiful shot of Superman breaking a rifle over his knee and just kind of shatters like a tree branch. You know, it makes me wonder what they think these things are made of. Now, at the end, Lois is being interviewed as apparently she was the only one rescued. I'm not sure why Clark wasn't on the uh, on the boat because Superman clearly could have gotten him out too. But everyone is okay with Clark just being looked after. I don't know. The whole logic seemed a little flimsy there. If you're going to save one, you may as well save both. But I guess Clark needs to stay in Japan so Superman can keep doing his thing every night. Apparently, flying to Japan every night is a little bit too much of a commute for him. So, I don't know. The nice thing about the Fleischer shorts is they hold up better than these do. Just having Superman fighting World War II dates them terribly, and a child seeing these now is not going to respond favorably to these. The other ones, yes. This, no. So, anyway, we're going to move right along to Destruction Incorporated. This was released on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1942. And no, this is not a Christmas episode. It stars Bud Collier as Superman and Clark Kent, Joan Alexander as Lois Lane, Jackson Beck as the chief thug and narrator, Jack Mercer as the radio newscaster, and Lewis, Julian Noah as the narrator. One night in Metropolis, the elderly night watchman from the hu Metropolis Munitions Works is found dead in a swamp. When news of the incident reaches the city the next morning, Lois Lane and Clark Kent both decide to grab the story for themselves. Clark talks to Lois, not realizing she is gone, and he is talking to a bus driver named Lewis. Huh, sounds like there might be a story at the plant, Lois. Lois? Me name is Lewis, not Lois. Gee whiz, everybody in Toypolates me name wrong. It's Lewis. L O U. I S Lois er uh, uh Louise er uh, Lucy uh, Now I'm so mixed up I don't know who I am 
as Lois goes undercover at the plant after meeting with the plant supervisor in the personnel building. She meets the new night guard, a kindly white-haired old man leaving the personal manager office. Posing as a factory worker, Lois overhears the foreman telling two of the workers that Mr. Jones, one of the supervisors, wants them in his office upstairs at 12. During break time, the workers head up to Mr. Jones's office. Up in the office, Lois overhears Mr. Jones's plan to blow up the factory as the switch to the factory's night lights has been rigged to a case of dynamite. It is also revealed that the workers killed the night watchman to cover their tracks. Just then, Mr. Jones sees Lois outside the office window and opens the blinds, causing Lois to realize that she has been seen. Mr. Jones sends the workers to catch her. Lois manages to get away from the workers across the window legend beams, but is caught by the foreman. She is gagged and loaded inside a test torpedo with another case of dynamite. As a company rule, test torpedoes aren't loaded with explosives. The night guard enters the room and rushes to help Lois after witnessing what's happening. However, the foreman stops the night guard by dropping several tons of scrap metal on him, seemingly killing him. The torpedo is sent back to the testing range and set to be fired at a dummy ship. Back inside the factory, the night guard is struggling to free himself from the rubble. As soon as he finally frees himself, the night guard is revealed to be Clark himself, having posed undercover as well to see what's going on. Having changed himself into Superman, Clark flies off to the test field. As the test torpedo was fired, Superman rushes out to the testing range and saves Lois before the torpedo explodes. He frees Lois, who tells him that Mr. Jones is about to blow up the plant. Realizing that they've been discovered, Mr. Jones orders the foreman to throw the night guard switch now. However, Superman stops the foreman and the workers from throwing it fully before beating them down. Just when Mr. Jones thinks his plans are ruined, he spots a truck loaded with dynamite. He steers the truck toward the factory in a collision course. Then he jumps out before impact. Fortunately, Lois warns Superman about the truck, and he sends it over a cliff, saving the factory. Story ends with Mr. Jones, the foreman, and the workers being arrested for their crimes, and Lois revealing that she knew Clark was the night guard all along. Well, Pop, Superman put an end to their little act, and this puts an end to yours, Clark Kent. <laughs> Alright, now this story was by Jay Morton. Now we start off with this first shot of the swamp and I will say the hand just sinking under the water was very creepy, very ominous, and almost the way a horror picture would start. Okay, so we now we've moved back to Metropolis. It's nice to see Clark is home from the adventure overseas. Either Superman rescued him or the Japanese let him go. I'm being, obviously I'm being facetious here as all these shorts stand alone. Well, anyway, we see this guy that Clark confused by calling him Lois. He reminds me of Jimmy from Showdown, at least the character that is identified as Jimmy. But he says his name is Lois, and by the end of the exchange, he has no idea who he is because the man is so put out by Clark not knowing his name that he just freaks out. I guess that was supposed to be funny. All right. I didn't find this so, but we're just going to move on from that. Lois sneaks into the munitions plant, and this is Lois Lane done right. She is sneaking in to find her story. She's still breaking and entering, but she's showing initiative and not taking down Clark to lift herself up. She's doing it all on her own, and that's the, that's the Lois Lane that we want to see. And now she's listening at the door, and she's caught. She got a little too close to the light. That happens. But it happened in the line of duty. Now, Lois is running away. She climbs up to a ledge, showing that she can't take care of herself, even if she does get in over her head sometimes. What's really impressive is that she can bounce on the rafters and swing from a cable, all while wearing high heels. I, myself, probably couldn't do that in sneakers. 
But it's all for naught as Lois ends up loaded into a missile as she is eventually caught by the criminals. Here comes the new Watchman. He looks like Commissioner Gordon. Gray mustache and all. And apparently, after he comes out, the Watchman is revealed to be Superman. I'm not sure why he felt the need to go undercover. And couldn't he have saved Lois already? She didn't even need it to be loaded, loaded into the missile. He could have dealt with everything at the plant. But, as they say, if he did that, we wouldn't have the rest of the story. And then we would be deprived of all this additional action of Superman punching out the bad guys. And and I am continuing to assume that the new animators did not like drawing belts, because Superman still does not have one. And, you know, and the story ends. The plant is destroyed, and Superman saves the munitions plant from the criminal's act. And Clark goes back into his Watchmen costume, because we need it for the ending. But... You know, it's ironic. Lois claimed she knew that Clark was the Watchman when he looked completely different with his white hair and his Jim Gordon mustache. But yet she can't tell Superman is hiding behind the, gl the glasses. Well, there is nothing different in these, this animation between Clark Kent and Superman. The only difference on his face is a pair of glasses. Clark even has Superman's spit curl. So there is no reason why this version of Lois can't identify Superman as Clark Kent. But she can't identify Superman as Clark Kent because the showrunners don't want her to. So that's that. And all right, and next time we're going to take a look at the last four of the animated shorts put out by Famous Studios. We're going to look at The Mummy Strikes, Jungle Drums, The Underground World, and Secret Agent. And I just want to let everybody know I'm looking forward to getting some feedback from you, the listener. Uh, so send me an email at uh, manofscreen at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook at just by searching Man of Screen Podcast. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll be happy to read your emails on the show. And that's it for this episode. Uh, until next time, I will be around. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zimo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zimo and all music is in sound clips used in the making of this show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com, and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.